You wanna finish what you started? You came to the right place. The girls that you came with, you might have to part with. Depending on how this thing shakes. Wabatosa, Kenosha, is in the house. Okay, welcome to another episode of The New Look, where we're going to be taking a new look at cyber with uh, someone that I've worked very closely with over the last year, Suzanne Spaulding. Suzanne, how are you? I'm great, Mike. How are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for taking the time. Um, I, uh, I, I don't know where to begin other than we've, uh, we've spent a lot of time in various um, uh, Senate office buildings and uh, meeting rooms over the last year year and change as part of the cyberspace solarium commission uh, you were one of our outside experts and commissioners uh for the solarium commission but before we get into that i, I just want to talk about your your own background and you uh about a month ago sent me an email that was very touching where you shared a photo uh, of a, a gravestone at arlington uh, and also a picture of your mother and father uh if you're if you'd be so kind maybe share your your parents background and um and just the story you shared with me Oh, absolutely, uh, Congressman. I'm happy to do it and, and very proud of them both. My, uh, my parents were both in the Marine Corps. My um, mother was married, as you saw in the photo, in her dress white uniform. And uh, she, she got out very shortly thereafter and raised a family. I'm I, one of seven children. Uh, wow. But my father, uh, you know, stayed in the Marine Corps and um, and really, mother wound up raising those seven children largely by herself, both because dad was uh, deployed uh, frequently, but also he was killed in Vietnam in 1966. Uh, I was nine, number five of the children, uh, and mother, you know, raised this family uh, by herself largely. And um, and so I consider them both uh, to be tremendous public servants. And, uh, and very proud of them both. Mom went on to work on Capitol Hill. And so I know I get my commitment to public service for both of them and my um, Potomac fever, as we call it, my uh, interest and love in our uh, political process as ugly as it is, uh, and our policymaking process comes from them. That is such an unbelievable story. I mean, seven children, 1966, and your mom has to navigate that and going back to work. What I'd just be curious. So you said you were five of seven. Yeah. So what was daily life like back then, particularly when your mom uh, went went back to work? Yeah. Uh, well, a lot of delegation of responsibility. Uh, my husband and I both, you know, I think it's one of the reasons things that brought us together when we met was that we both realized that at about age ten. We were uh, feeding the younger, you know, feeding our families, uh, stepping in for both of our mothers who worked uh, full time. And uh, but it was wonderful. I wouldn't, you know, I mean, I, I, our family is very close to this day, and uh, and being able to just sort of move with your built-in set of friends and and people uh, with whom you shared so much is, uh, was really wonderful growing up, and and continues to be wonderful to this day. Well, I I can definitely see the value with a an eight week old daughter now. It'd be nice if there was like a a responsible eight year old or ten year old that I that could just watch her at times. But so there's definitely some economy of force that happens with the families big enough. I don't know if we'll get to seven, but that's definitely 
a model to shoot for there. Um, well, I, 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 I wouldn't wish it on Grace. My older sister, who's 10 years older than I am, really bore the brunt of that, you know, being mama's helper, uh, raising those seven children. And um, I'm sure just as my sister Julie, you know, did it beautifully, Grace would as well. But it's tough. Oh, I'm sure. Incredibly tough. Um, so you mentioned this, but I mean, growing up, having both of your parents serving, then having your mom work on Capitol Hill, you were surrounded by public service. Did you know from a very young age that you had that bug, the Potomac fever, as you you referred to it as? And, and how did that manifest itself when you were a student? Yes. So uh, definitely growing up with Mother on the Hill, when when I had days off of school, teacher work days or whatever, I would ride into work with mother and I would just wander around on Capitol Hill, starting from a you know pretty young age. And I would go into the hearing rooms and uh, you know listen to the hearings and go into congressional offices and see what kind of goodies they were giving away and uh, sit in the gallery and watch the goings on. I just really, really loved it. And around about seventh grade, I think I decided I was gonna run for office. And and I so I started reading the biographies of politicians. And in those days, particularly, almost, you know, so many members of Congress were lawyers. So I thought, oh, that's what you do. You get your law degree and then you run for office. And that's when I decided to go to law school. Somewhere along the line, I got smart enough to realize that uh, I, my skin was not thick enough to run for office. I don't know how you guys do it. Uh, but I did not want to see myself in a political cartoon. Uh, but I did go on to law school, got my law degree, and and eventually made my way back to Capitol Hill. Where'd you go to undergrad prior to law school? University of Virginia, both undergraduate and law beautiful. school. Yeah. Beautiful. Beautiful. Yeah. True. Charlottesville is absolutely incredible. Yeah, it's um, a great place to go to school. What's the thing, the tradition they have where a certain amount of students get to live in like the lawn? The lawn? That always seemed like a cool thing to me. It, it seems like a cool thing. Uh, you, there's no bathroom in your room. You have to go outside, down the walkway, you know, out into the parking area to the find the bathroom. Yeah. Um, so it has its drawbacks. And at two or three in the morning, you got to put up with, uh, you know, people like me who didn't want to go to bed and wanted to sing Broadway songs on the lawn uh, in the middle of the night instead. Right. So you know, you, you don't have a lot of privacy. <laughs> a lot to dig into there. So were you, did you live on the lawn? I did not. Okay, but you were singing on the lawn. So were you musically inclined in your college experience? You know, again, growing up, my brothers played the guitar and uh, we used to have sit around as a family and sing songs all, all the time when I was growing up. Oh, that's fantastic. Do you play and sing to this day? I do not play. I do sing uh, much to my family and sometimes friends, uh, you know, remorse. But <laughs> but yes, I do. So you stayed in Charlottesville. Yeah. Go ahead. Sorry. Just for fun, I said. Well, I, I, my, uh, my wife's an actual uh, good singer, and I have uh, shower singing that um, makes people cry from oh, I'm sure being it's so stupid. terrible. So, <laughs> um, okay, so you stay in Charlottesville for law school, uh, and I think something that's unique about UVA is the law school and a lot of the graduate schools seem more integrated into the the undergrad. It's all it seems like one community. Um, then what did you do right out of law school? So, you know, my intent had been to go to Capitol Hill. I knew I wanted to be up on the Hill. But in those days, at least, members of Congress didn't go to law schools to interview. I don't know whether you do, but nobody did in those days. 
law firms came to interview law students. And so I signed up to interview with law firms and wound up at a law firm. But I let everybody know that I met that I wanted to work on the Hill. And after three years uh, in private practice, I found out about a senior counsel position with Arlen Specter, uh, then Republican from Pennsylvania. And, uh, and I interviewed and, and was hired to move to the Hill. And were you, so were you in his personal office originally? Did you do his committee work? Where, where did you land when you made that transition? Yep, my, I started in his personal office and I wound up spending time uh, as, uh, on his judiciary subcommittee uh, as a counsel over there for a while. Um, and then I, I left when my daughter was born and um, uh, wound up back with him after a stint at CIA. So, uh, and, and then when I went back, I was the general counsel for the Senate Intelligence Committee. Oh, fantastic. Um, I, uh, st- I, I'm, I'm curious if your experience at the time was similar to mine. After I got out of the Marine Corps, I stumbled into a job as a, a committee staffer, a professional staffer on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. And at the time, I didn't realize how what, how many perks there were in terms of you could travel to the region, you could get anyone on the phone. And as a staffer, relatively young, you had done the right way, if you were diligent, you could actually have a lot of influence. Uh, did you did you feel that way working on the intelligence committee? And what was the relationship between the committee and the intelligence community itself? Uh, yes, uh, yes to all of the above. Uh, it, it, I've often told young people, Capitol Hill is a place where you are liable to get uh, a lot of responsibility very quickly. Um, they, the staffs are not that deep. And, uh, and the issues are really important. And if you demonstrate a capability, you're gonna be given a lot of responsibility. It's a very exciting place to work. And the intelligence community certainly was no exception. The relationship with the intelligence community, uh, the committee is really interesting and really important. When I was there, Arlen Specter was the chair and Senator Bob Carey of Nebraska was the vice chair. And they were committed to a bipartisan, really nonpartisan approach to intelligence oversight, which I think it absolutely has to be. You know, intelligence resides very uncomfortably in a democracy. Democracy depends on transparency and informed citizen, citizenry, and intelligence often requires secrecy. So you, the public has to have faith and confidence that, the, in, that Congress is doing its oversight responsibility and doing it in the national interest and not in a, in a partisan interest. And, uh, and, and the Senate Intelligence Committee, when I served as general counsel, did that very well. I was the general counsel for the committee for both the Democrats and the Republicans, if you wow. can imagine. And, but that's not the case anymore. I think, at least on with the committees I served on, there was always a Republican and Democrat. Um, that's a phenomenal, experience. And then how did you, you served on the, the House uh, Intelligence Committee as well, and you also had time in the intelligence community itself. Take us through that kind of journey and how it evolved. Yeah. So after working for Arlen Specter um, that first time, the first, back in, that was back in the mid-80s, uh, I then, uh, after I'd been home with my d- brand new daughter for a while, went back to work part-time at CIA in the general counsel's office. And I was there for six years and another terrific place to work, just really fascinating. And, and as a woman, uh, there was a woman general counsel at the time, Elizabeth Rinskopf 
uh, and she gave me all kinds of opportunities. I wound up as the legal advisor for the folks worrying about WMD, the Nonproliferation Center. So that was great. And then Senator Specter became chair of the Senate Intelligence Committee. So he called me up and asked if I would come back and be his uh, general counsel. And uh, and so that's how I sort of made those movements. Then um, I took some time off when uh, shortly after he left the committee as chair, as he was term limited off. Um, and uh, and then I went back to run a couple of congressionally created commissions, commissions like the Solarium Commission. One was on WMD, weapons of mass destruction, and the other was on terrorism. The Terrorism Commission had a member, Jane Harmon. She was out of Congress at the time. She had stepped down to run for governor, and uh, and she and I became uh, friends. And when she won her seat back and got her seniority and became the ranking member on the House Intelligence Committee, she asked me to come and be her staff director. So that's kind of how that happened. And I have to say, both Arlen Specter and Jane Harmon uh, approached this with a true commitment to bipartisanship, nonpartisan. I think Arlen Specter hired me in the mid 80s because he thought I was a Democrat. He was a Republican at the time. And I and Jane Harmon once told me that she hired me, now we're in the mid 2000s, on the House Intelligence Committee because she thought I was a Republican. <laughs> and. Uh, and I wear that as a badge of honor. <laughs> Did you conceive of yourself as either at that time? Uh, yeah, well, you know, I always sort of leaned Democrat, but I, but I took very seriously the the ethic in the intelligence community that your partisan politics, uh, you know, you left at home, and uh, and I I always made it a, a point that nobody really had a good sense of what where what you know what political party. I might back in an election um, because uh, we thought it was so critically important. Who was the ranking Republican when you were staff director? On the House Intelligence House, Committee. House, yeah. Yes, uh, Porter Goss for most of the time. I'm trying to remember. Yeah, he was there when I first started. Yeah. Got it. Um, well, I think one of the things I most enjoyed about the Solarium experience um, is that if you just went into some of our discussions and you didn't know uh, who the who had what party affiliation prior to it, you wouldn't be able to ascertain the party affiliation during the course of the conversation because it was kind of all over the place. There were, I would always joke with Angus that he was making a lot of the hawkish, evil Republican arguments, and I was not. Um, but uh, let's plant the flag there and come back to it. So you, okay, so you, you've worked in the, from the Hill, intelligence community, back to the Hill, all sorts of experience. Take us from that to serving uh, in DHS and serving at what as the head of what is now called CISA. Yes. So uh, I went in to DHS in October of, of 2011 as the deputy undersecretary. Rand Beers, who had been a colleague uh, in previous administrations, and who I knew well was the undersecretary and asked me to come in and be his deputy for, uh, at the time there were two deputies, one for cyber and one for all of, all else. And I was asked to come in and be the deputy for all else, for everything else. Um, but he, but his plan at, the, at that point was to eventually move me up to be the undersecretary. Um, and indeed he was uh, moved up to be the deputy secretary and ultimately the acting secretary I was nominated to be the undersecretary and was confirmed a couple years later. 
uh, after arriving at DHS. And when you were on the Hill, how, I mean, if my time is correct, you would have been involved in the creation of DHS, correct? So no, I was okay. not on the Hill at the time, but I was somewhat involved um, yeah. by a Jane Harmon. Once you've worked for Jane Harmon, you're always her staff. <laughs> she never lets you go. And, uh, and she was still in Congress at the time. And I, to this day, remember uh, she asked me to come in uh, with Elizabeth Rinskopf, who had been the general counsel at CIA. And she talked to us about the ideas floating around about a Department of Homeland Security. We had some ideas. And I remember her saying, I want you to start writing it up right now. And she walked us out of her office to a staffer and asked that staff person to get up and let us use their machine. And uh, next thing I knew, I was sitting there, you know, typing up a, a, <laughs> a concept for <laughs> But this I was the, not in government at the time. This is yeah. a hallmark of a great member of Congress is that they never let their staff <laughs> move on and they're always asking them to do work for them. Uh, something I have not fully mastered yet, but mm, I've informed former staffers that they they never escape my reach. Um, okay, so maybe give uh, the the tens of listeners I have in Northeast Wisconsin a sense of what was the state of CISA at the time? It obviously wasn't called CISA. What was the mission as you saw it back then? And how did the organization evolve when you led it? Yeah, um, thank you for the question. It's something I care deeply about. When I arrived, and it was called the National Protection and Programs Directorate, which I always thought was such a horrible name. It tells you nothing about the organization, right? And that was in part intentional because uh, particularly under Rand Beer's leadership, uh, the Janet Napolitano was the secretary at the time and had tremendous faith and confidence in Rand. And when, when things like the Federal Protective Service came into DHS and they didn't know where to put it, it was like, well, let's give it to Rand. He'll make sure that it works. He'll, he'll manage it uh, appropriately. The, what used to be U.S. Visit, which is you know the, the um, checking people coming in and out of the country uh, biometrically now. Uh, uh, wound up in NPPD, in addition to the cyber mission and protection of critical infrastructure. So it was viewed as a kind of grab bag of unrelated uh, missions. And when I came in and started looking at it carefully, I realized actually all of those missions uh, were really about protecting our nation's critical infrastructure, strengthening their resilience and their security against all hazards, and, uh, and began to bring that unity of effort uh, you know, trying to get all of those pieces to behave as one, to see themselves as sharing a mission. So it was a microcosm of what was what what the leadership at DHS was trying to do with the department, 22 different agencies and entities that had been brought together. How do we get them to think of themselves as being part of one organization with a shared mission? Uh, so that was a big part of what I did at MPPD. And I, and I quickly realized that changing the name and would be a key element of getting that culture change to get folks to recognize both in and out of the building what this mission was really about. So cybersecurity and infrastructure security agency tells you what, what that organization does uh, in a much better way and gives all of those people a sense of shared mission. The They've, they've, they've narrowed it down now to cybersecurity and infrastructure protection. And I think it's a very strong organization. And as you know, we work, we, we made recommendations to make it even stronger. 
Well, I want to get that's a perfect transition point. But I imagine even at the time, which wasn't that long ago when you led the organization, cybersecurity wasn't as uh, ubiquitous as it is now. Now it seems everything every day there's a cyber story. Was there a sense when you when you took leadership of CISA at the time that part of the job was just to make people understand that this domain of competition was increasingly important or just understand what the heck cyber is at all? Yeah, both. Uh, you're absolutely right. At, at that time, a, a tremendous part of what we were doing, particularly in our public outreach, but also to our fellow departments and agencies in the civilian you know, .gov, was simply to raise awareness. This is a real threat. This is not something in the future. This is happening now. Uh, and you have to take it seriously, and there are things you can do. And, and it was that basic. It was that, that's how fundamental we had to be. Uh, by the time I left uh, in early 2017, I realized that most of the folks we were talking to understood that this was a very serious threat. Surveys continued to show that um, increasing numbers of CEOs and boards were losing sleep over this. And we were able to turn much more of our focus on, okay, you know it's a problem, here's how you can address it. Here are the things you need to do. And that was a really important transition uh, that we were able to make. And just for those uh, listening, we're glossing over thousands of things that are in Suzanne's impeccable resume. If you want to read more about them, you can go on CSIS.org and search for Suzanne Spaulding. She's had an incredible career, but we only have an hour and there's so many things we want to get to. But did you go to get to Solarium? Did you go directly from CISA to CSIS or what were the steps in between? Yeah, pretty much. When I got out of uh, CISA, I wasn't called CISA yet. I, I worked really hard to get that name changed, but it didn't happen until after I left. Um, but when I got out, of course, I had spent much of 2016 worrying about the security of our collection infrastructure. And, uh, and I got out re realizing that the Russians never left. So, the, you know, people were talking about they'll be back in 2018, and I kept sort of yelling at my TV, they never left, they're still here. Uh, and that, the, that what they were engaged in, these information operations, were not just about elections. That what we saw in 2016 was really just part of a longer-term, broad-based information operation targeting Americans' faith in democracy uh, and targeting its institutions beyond elections. So I started talking to my colleagues across, you know, Republicans and Democrats, uh, to see if if I got a, could get a consensus about that, and quickly did, and so pulled them together to start talking about how do we counter it. And one of the first people I went to was John Hamry, who was the president and CEO of CSIS, the Center for Strategic and International Studies, which is uh, certainly the country's, if not the world's, uh, um, strongest, best national security think tank and uh, talked to him about it and he said, you're absolutely right, what can I do to help? And that's how I wound up at CSIS. We, we did a report generally about it, the attack on democracy and then started a deep dive on the attacks on our justice system. So you are currently the Senior Advisor for Homeland Security and the Director of Defending Democratic Institutions Project at CSIS. So you get to CSIS and then you're appointed to the Cyberspace Solarium Commission, uh, as am I, and then uh, presumably because no one else wanted to. Uh, somehow Angus and I got appointed uh, the chairs of this commission. And 
I think while we had legislation describing the purpose of the commission, there was a lot of debate about how we would go about our our business. Um, I'd be just curious, and you can be brutally honest here. You had been a part of a lot of these outside reviews, outside commissions. And one of the things we grappled with was how do we ensure that we're not just another outside commission, right? How do we make sure our report, as brilliantly argued as it might be, doesn't just collect dust on a shelf? What kind of bias did you bring in to that debate in some of our early discussions based on your previous experience with outside commissions? Yeah, I, I will confess, now that you've given me the opening, that I was a not optimistic uh, <laughs> I knew it. I knew it. Yeah. <laughs> well, I didn't know you then. Uh, but I, I had been on, uh, you know, executive director for two commissions and 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 a consultant and you know, involved with a number of others. And typically, the members of Congress who were appointed to these commissions, and they almost all had uh, one or two members of Congress on them, um, did not really participate. They would send at best staff to the meetings and you know show up at the beginning and maybe show if you were lucky show up at the end um, uh, and and so I, I really was very nervous when I found out that in fact the two co-chairs were both members of Congress I, I wasn't at all sure how this was going to go uh, and 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 frankly I wasn't sure how it was going to work with members of the executive branch as commissioners that was unique in my experience I've never been on a com an outside commission that was uh, you know filled with insiders uh, and I really was you know curious to see how that was going to go and I have to say that one of the key reasons that this is not just another commission report gathering dust on the shelves but is as we speak, being made into reality on the ground is because of the members of Congress that were on the commission. And so in hindsight, I think it was brilliant, uh, particularly this particular members that we got, all of, you know, the fact that you and, and, and Senator King were there for every single meeting, uh, all 30 plus meetings and have continued on Zoom meetings uh, was really remarkable. Uh, Congressman Langevin, when he couldn't be there physically calling in, I mean, it was really quite impressive, the level of involvement, and not just in the development of the ideas in the report, but in but in working hard, really hard, to get your colleagues to understand where these recommendations are coming from and get them enacted, particularly in the Defense Authorization Act. So that is unique and really remarkable. I mean, the 9-11 Commission is the only other commission I know of that had that kind of success. And it was because there was a national tragedy and, and frankly, the families of the survivors of those who were killed that day who would not give up uh, coming to the Hill. And we didn't have that. And as you've often said, thankfully, uh, we're hoping to get some things done before we have our cyber or without having that cyber 9-11. But it's a pretty remarkable accomplishment. Well, it's nice of you to say you were a key part of that success to the extent we're declaring success. It's a lot of work yet to be done. Um, yeah, uh, so let's get into the meat of the report. Well, just quick comment. On more than one occasion, Angus King would lean over to me or remark to the whole group that this is how Congress should actually work, where people show up to their hearings and actually have a real discussion as opposed to just reading talking points. So there's a lesson in that for sure. 
Um, I want to talk about a few areas of the report that you're in a unique position to comment on. Perhaps most obviously uh, is this idea of strengthening CISA, really taking the organization that you led at DHS and finding ways to elevate and empower it so it can accomplish that mission of protecting our critical infrastructure. Uh, talk a little bit about that and uh, some of the, the recommendations we have in the report for strengthening CISA. Yeah, uh, so important. You know, over the last several years, Congress has increasingly gained confidence in the capabilities, competency of this entity at the department. And frankly, I think even members who weren't yet quite convinced that DHS could get its act together to really do this mission understood that this was where the mission had to reside. And, and, for, and, I, and for the first several years, there was a lot of debate about that. Uh, a lot of talk about we should really give this mission to the National Security Agency, put it in the intelligence community, put it in the Defense Department. And, uh, and, and those who were really thoughtful about it, you know, pretty quickly recognized it had to be in a civilian agency if you're gonna work with the private sector and have trust with, with, with the American public, with the private sector and your international partners. And that we need to make sure that DHS can do this mission, does have the capability to do this mission. And when that mindset took hold, then the resources, uh, both, both the, the financial resources, the budget, and the authorities in law um, that, that DHS needed to do this mission right started to fall into place. And that was really important. So what we're saying is you need to solidify that, you need to continue that, uh, and there's a lot more work to be done there. Well, it, it, there's you know simple things that we recommend, or difficult but simple in ideas, such as elevating your old position, right? Uh, you know, giving them a, a higher uh, GS scale, forget the term of art for the whole thing. Yep. Um, giving CISA more authorities to do certain things. Um, and ultimately, I think, I, I was convinced that while discussions about cyber become very complex and jargon filled, at the end of the day, it's a it's a human endeavor, right? And success and failure will really come down to whether we have talented human beings like Suzanne Spaulding working at CISA or working at the NSA. Could you elaborate a little bit on just the challenge the federal government has in in recruiting and retaining personnel, whether it's at CISA or NSA? Yeah, um, it, it is a huge challenge. Uh, first of all, we can't pay obviously what the private sector can pay, and and we have a massive deficit in the number of people uh, with cybersecurity skills to fill the number of jobs that we have in the government and in the private sector. Some estimates put it as high as 500,000 vacancies uh, that need to be filled. So we're competing for scarce talent. We can compete in government for that talent. Uh, we can pay those folks a little bit more, but really the way we compete, as you know, is on mission. Uh, the private sector can't offer that sense of accomplishment, that sense of being part of something bigger than yourself, uh, that sort of excitement of going to work every day to protect uh, the American public, your family, your community, uh, your country, and to some, on some days, the world. And, uh, and so we can com compete, but that's that attraction to the mission cannot overcome a year-long wait to get your security clearance, for example. So we've got recommendations about expediting that process. I mean, that just killed us 
the, the backlog on clearance, getting clearances was, was, was really um, very harmful to our, to our recruitment. The, the, just the whole bureaucracy around hiring, bringing people in. So a lot of recommendations around that and progress has, is being made, but it needs to be made very quickly. And then there's the retention, right? So you've got to make sure that you continue to give people those exciting opportunities, that we have the, uh, an inclusive workforce with that many vacancies and that much need. We cannot afford, just from a selfish practical perspective, to, have, to not re be recruiting from our entire population, women and, and, and people of color and, and, and even people uh, with neural, neural dif differences. Uh, you know, we need to be able to, to have an inclusive workforce where we bring in anybody who can contribute uh, to accomplishing this mission. And that means making a special effort to recruit, but also to retain a diverse workforce. It also helps us to uh, in our assessment, our analysis, and understanding the problems. Particularly for a cyber workforce where, at the risk of overgeneralizing, let's say there are not a lot of uh, high and tight wearing, pull up doing Marines that might be the most talented cyber warriors we want. And so you need to reach into non-traditional talent pools. Um, I think uh, there, just to go back a little bit to this debate about whether to empower CISA versus putting it somewhere else or taking it out of DHS, there is sort of a more extreme option that we debated, which is the creation of an entirely separate agency. Um, maybe if you, if you wouldn't mind just commenting on that, and, and I have my own views, but why, why that isn't the right uh, approach going forward. Yep. Yep. Well, I appreciate, again, I appreciate the question because it's another issue about which I feel quite passionately. Uh, you noted uh, earlier in our conversation that cyber touches everything. And it really does. There's not an aspect of our daily lives that isn't, you know, on some in some way impacted <clears throat> by what happens on the internet. And uh, and so that means that every department and agency in the government has some role in cybersecurity and and in addressing the threats uh, that might come from malicious activity in cyberspace and, and with respect to our data and our communications and our operations. And, and so there really is no practical way to take all of that and put it in one department. The other, the other piece of that is that cyber and physical are increasingly interconnected. We, we understand more and more that cyber can have physical effects in the real world, whether it's the electric grid or transportation or our financial services sector, whatever that might be. And that things that happen in the physical world can have an impact on the on the uh, potentially disrupt right our communications and information technology. So keeping those things connected, and that's what CISA does. CISA has both the physical security and resilience mission and the cyber, and I think that's really important. And keeping electricity cybersecurity led by the Department of Energy that are our electric grid experts, for example. That's really important. Well said. Okay, so this is a huge element of our final report, which people can read by going on solarium.gov and you can download it for free. And we've made it unclassified and accessible to everybody. We tried to make it fun and interesting at points too. Um, elevating and empowering is a, a key part of our recommendation. I'd like to talk a little bit about a second area where you've been a very uh, eloquent um, uh, 
exponent of i'm mixing up my words today because i didn't get much sleep last night with the baby daughter um uh which is election security and obviously you do a lot of work on uh defending democracy uh at csis uh, maybe talk about that broader work within the specific context of some of our election security recommendations in the final report yes thank you so critically important um we we do have a number of recommendations around election security uh, some of them target uh, an entity that's very important in helping the states, and that is the Election Assistance Commission, uh, which is a, a longstanding organization established, uh, I believe, by Congress uh, to, to help the state and local election officials across the board on a wide range of election issues, but has taken on this role of helping them with cybersecurity as well. And so one of the things we recommend is that one of those commissioners, uh, there ought to be a fifth commissioner, there are four currently, that has, a, has some cybersecurity expertise to really help them provide that assistance. We also recognize that state and local uh, officials need help. They don't have the resources they need today to, to do what needs to be done to secure uh, our elections. And so we, we make a recommendation for grants to those officials uh, to help with elections. And we understand that there's a potential moral hazard there that states need to have some skin in the game. In other words, they, they need to be really committed and show that by putting some resources in themselves, but that the federal government really needs to step in and help here. Um, that's really important. And then we, we lastly, we talked about, uh, noted the role of information operations, malign foreign influence operations in uh, interfering potentially in our election. And we had a a number of recommendations uh, along those lines, and that's something I've been working on for the last three years as well, and, uh, and a number of areas where we can improve that. But one is building public resilience against the content of that malicious messaging. Well, let's dig, on that, dig in on that a little bit. I, mean, I think most people have an awareness of kind of what the Russians tried to do in 2016. I think there's some confusion about or debate about how much of an impact it had still, but what do you view as the most malign forms of influence operations right now? And um, you know, it's obviously not just the Russians; it's it's other uh, actors out there. Is it you know social media misinformation? Is it more malignant than that? How, how does this how does this manifest itself as you've looked at this problem? Yeah. Well, we've looked primarily at Russian information operations. Mm -hmm. China is engaged in influence operations, um, but not the kind of, not anything like the broad-based campaign against democracy and democratic institutions that Russia has been engaged in almost since it's, you know, since the beginning. Uh, uh, and, and so, and, and has really taken advantage of social media to, to do this on a scale and a scope that we've never seen before. So what, as we've looked at it, we've seen that they, they take ex, make extensive use of social media, pretending to be Americans, pretending to be American affinity groups, a group like Secured Borders that they pretended to be in, in a place like Twin Falls, Idaho, uh, that was really just invented by the Russians. Um, but they also use their, their state-sponsored propaganda outlets like RT, which everyone should know stands for Russia Today, uh, like Sputnik, uh, they're, they're sort of you know, pro state-owned propaganda outlets, are very active in this space. And then a sta official statements from Putin himself, from their foreign minister, Lavrov, 
etc. So they use all of those. And I think a key goal of the messaging, there are lots of narratives that they push, but at the end of the day, it's really that democracy is irrevocably broken, that, that the system is irrevocably rigged. So it is the diff, I always say the difference between what they're their messaging on the flaws of democracy in our institutions and that from reform advocates, right? So the difference between Russian propaganda about our justice system and the protesters marching in the streets about racial injustice is that those judicial reform advocates and protesters are trying to bring about change to make the institution stronger, to make our country stronger. And that is not Putin's goal. That is not what he's about. He wants people to give up, to despair, to not vote, to disengage. Wow. Um, I almost see the influence, when you describe it that way, these influence operations as part of a larger ideological competition. I think about this mostly in the U.S.-China context, but it's almost as if the goal of Putin, and to some extent Xi, if you read what he says, is to just discredit the model of Western democracy as led by the United States and portray us or turn us into the gang that can't shoot straight and therefore tell non-aligned countries and citizens around the world that actually you should put your faith and trust in strongmen or, or, or party states like the one we have in China. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. The difference that I see between the way Putin is doing what you've said and the way China is doing it is that China actually believes they have a model they can hold up. That you know, so they're saying, you know, we we've got we've we've figured out how to control your population and still grow your economy. Putin knows he has no model he can hold up. And so Putin's goal is to drag us down to his level. So where she says our system is better, Putin says their system is no better. Their system is just as corrupt and broken as ours. And his audience, you're absolutely right, is countries around the world where we compete for influence. But it is first and foremost his own population. Don't wow. look for Western-style democracy. It's a mess. And is it, I mean, is it because he, it's just a, a bid for survival, regime survival? Uh, and, and, and fear in some ways of his own population? Yes, always. When I mean, I, with our four adversaries, I always say Russia, Korea, North Korea, Iran. You want to, as you start to develop your strategy, you want to think about what drives them. The number one issue that drives each and every one of those leaders is regime survival. It's their wow. own survival and power. One of the things I find most fascinating uh, as a, a former Middle East guy trying to make sense of the Pacific now is, I mean, if you read Xi's first major speech in 2013, a lot of it is about lessons learned from the demise of the Soviet Union and one of the lessons that he derives is there was an insufficient commitment to party and uh, specifically an insufficient commitment to party ideology. But the pages are just like, you know, pervaded by paranoia. It's all how do we foster this allegiance to the party state? But I think you're absolutely right that it's less of a cynical strategy for the Chinese Communist Party. There is a genuine belief that they have the model of the future that they've, per they've learned the lessons from the Soviet Union's demise and they can sort of perfect and succeed where the, where the Soviets failed. Um, I don't have a question there. That, you just made me think about that out loud, which is always a dangerous thing to do. Okay, but I, I wanna transition to, I would assume 
in order for us to defend our democracy from foreign influence operations, ultimately it requires our citizens to step up and, and, and act with a sense of responsibility and educate themselves about our democracy. So maybe uh, connect your efforts uh, on defending America from influence campaigns to your passion for civics education. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, as we you know, continued to look at the pernicious messaging out there and pulled, pulled from the 11 million tweets and however many Facebook posts what the narratives were and, and determined that this was the thrust of this pernicious messaging, I realize, so if your goal, if Putin's goal is to get us to despair at being able to bring about change, to despair at telling fact from fiction, and to give up on democracy, what are the what are the ways in which we counter that? And the most fundamental way we need to counter that, because we'll never eliminate this disinformation, no matter how good the platforms might be or how good media literacy we uh, might be, um, it's still going to be there. And it'll be domestic voices as well as, as foreign voices. You have to build that resilience within the public's consciousness against this messaging. You have to bring folks together to remind them of our shared values as, as members of this constitutional republic, that democracy is worth fighting for and must be fought for, that it is under attack and cannot be taken for granted, and that our institutions are not perfect. And each and every one of us has an obligation and the ability to hold them to account. So uh, what I have been pushing for, and I, I'm conducting a strategic dialogue, bringing the civics community together with the national security community to recognize that civics education is a national security imperative. Um, and and we've, you know, we've got to bring the whole force of our national security community behind those efforts to reinvigorate civics education uh, in our country. And I, I think it's critically important that we teach not just that there are three branches of government, which we have to teach, amazingly enough, so many people don't know that, um, but that, uh, but teach people how to be more effective agents of change, because that's a big part of it. it you, to counter a message that says despair, to counter a message that says it's irrevocably broken, you have to empower people to be effective agents of change. That's so powerful. I, I once spoke at a conference two or three years ago, and it was all progressives. I was like the token Republican. It was about political reform. I, I just, I, political reform is like my hobby. Uh, I always, I'm married, I'm married to national security, but my mistress is political reform. Um, the, uh, but the conference was called Unrig the System. And I gave this speech in which I kind of attacked the premise, which is, if we perpetuate the idea that the system is rigged, and there's an argument of that says that on both sides, by the way, in some sense, Bernie and Elizabeth Warren's rhetoric was indistinguishable from Trump's on that. On that, it it there's risks to that approach, and I I really worry about it on November fourth. I actually don't think the worst outcome is whether your side wins or loses. It's that half the country thinks the whole thing was rigged, and in an already toxic environment. That's just, that that really concerns me. I'd be curious, I know, so you're at the early stages of this strategic dialogue. Are you planning on releasing a report? Are there any emerging hypotheses for ways that we can smartly invest in civics education, so much of which happens at the K through 12 level? 
Yes. So first of all, let me say that I share your nightmare. Um, I too am very, very worried about the days, weeks, and even potentially months following election day. And, uh, and, I, and I do believe our adversaries are thinking about that as well and the ways in which they can exacerbate that problem. I think the cases that are, that, are, that are moving through the courts already and will flood the courts around elections, particularly in the light of COVID and decisions being made, et cetera, will further erode trust in the courts as, as the losing side in any case decides that the judge was just political. Um, and I worry about whether there will whether we'll reach a point where a significant percentage of the population just decides that the judge's ruling is not um, binding, and and we we have threatened the peaceful transition of power. So uh, I have a fairly apocalyptic fear about this, uh, and I think we all need to be do our part to try to prevent that from happening. Um, well, go ahead. Sorry. There's, yeah, go, there's no. so, so much there. I, I remember my so when I first got elected in 2016, the night before the inauguration, the next month in January, they had a display at the Library of Congress with uh, the first draft of Jefferson's inaugural with 1800, 1801, I guess. Um, and that election was brutal. Right. And he gave this beautiful speech where we're all Republicans, we're all Federalists. But I believe it was Reagan commenting on that or something else at one of his inaugurals saying the peaceful transfer of power is at once commonplace and remarkable. In other words, like we take for granted that it happens, right? And if you spend any time outside the United States, there's a lot of country where the transfer of power is not so peaceful. Um, so everything you're talking about and working on is so, so critically important. Um, and in some ways, I mean, if the one, there's a risk that people just check out, they stop voting and they just lose faith in the system. That's one outcome, which is bad. There's a worse outcome that is like banana republic territory. That, that's really bad. So thank you for being on the front lines of this debate. Um, uh, OK, so we have about nine to 10 minutes left. Uh, I want to do a little bit more fun stuff. Not that, you know, the health of our democracy isn't a fun topic, but here you are with uh, an incredible life experience and resume. I would read your resume and think, Suzanne never has time for anything fun. What do you do when you're not thinking deep thoughts about cybersecurity or the future of American democracy or civics education? Like, what is your diversion? So I'm, I'm gonna now embarrass my children terribly by confessing that I am a birder. Oh, wow. Yeah, I really love, I love watching birds. Um, my husband years ago got me a, an amazing uh, set of binoculars and, uh, and I really just love, love bird watching. So that, when I, when I have the time, that's something I really enjoy doing to relax. I will tell you that what is my greatest diversion uh, as of four weeks ago is my first grandchild. Oh, congratulations. Unbelievable. Boy or girl? Boy, uh, but he's very cute and, uh, and, and really just a delight. And his parents live in Washington, D.C., so I'm seeing a, a good bit of him. Oh, perfect. Well, one of the trickiest things for us to navigate in the midst of coronavirus was what was our process for letting the grandparents hold the baby. Now they've all they're all helping us out and, and things like that. But that was a bit 
nerve-wracking uh, originally. Yeah, it's, it's, it's difficult. I mean, this is a difficult time. We, my, my daughter and her husband had to think hard about letting us in the bubble, but they, uh, yeah, they ultimately decided they needed the help. So, Absolutely. so that's been great. My, my son got married the end of May. So that was wow. big news a, for us. And is a year for your family? Tiny little 10 person, beautiful ceremony, but we couldn't hug him. Oh no. He's an analyst at the Department of Energy and going into work on a, you know, periodically. And so didn't want us, didn't want to take the risk of infecting us. So it is, these are, these are strange times, aren't they? I mean, we've been very lucky and very blessed, but uh, those are minor inconveniences compared to what a lot of people are having to put up with. For sure. But, but it's a strange time. Think how many weddings were scheduled yeah. this summer that had to get readjusted and, oh my gosh. Uh, well, what a blessing to have a, a healthy grandchild though. That's that's yeah. unbelievable. Okay, what about reading? reading? Are you all nonfiction serious or do you have, do you read fiction too? What does your bookshelf look like? Yeah, no, my bookshelf is a stack of books, you know, uh, several feet high next to my bed of books I hope someday to read. <laughs> I, I, uh, it's all I can do, honestly, to keep up with what's in the paper and what's, you know, in all of the various publications uh, that I try to follow. If, if you can imagine between the cybersecurity, the information operations, disinformation stuff, the election security uh, you know, what's happening at DHS. It's just, it's, it's, um, a, there's very little time for fiction reading. Oh, oh my, a tragedy. So, yeah. When I, usually in the summer, I will go to the beach and take a fiction uh, book. Um, we aren't going to the beach this summer. Uh, and so I don't know if I'll get my fiction reading in. Yeah. Okay, and I want you to be honest about this next question. Um, you've already confessed to singing uh, on the lawn at UVA and birding, so this should be easy to confess. <laughs> what about lowbrow, like TV, movies? What does that look like? Yeah, so uh, we are watching way more TV uh, during the pandemic than we ever did. Uh, and I will say, you know, a few of my very favorites. Schitt's Creek. Which is Everyone loves Schitt's Creek. Uh, yeah. I've, we have not watched it. Yeah, it's I, it, it, you have to stick with it. I didn't like okay. it at the beginning. You gotta, you gotta, you, you know, you gotta stick with it. Uh, the marvelous Miss Maisel, Mrs. Maisel, was wonderful, and uh, and I watched finally for the first time The Good Place and really liked that as well. Interesting. I have yeah. not seen any of those three, but I, I'm gonna yeah. run those by my wife and see those if they can. Those are our sort of lowbrow, you know, guilty pleasures. Yes. Yeah. That's good. That's not that lowbrow. I can think of way more. You didn't say Tiger King or, or something like that. I can think of way more. That. I, I yeah. So as we continue to push forward our solarium recommendations and try and get them into law, and we're going to take a look at the the report again in a few months or next year, uh, what are so what uh, people that want to follow your work? Uh, where do they go? Uh, what are there any other projects you have in development that you want to tell the the literally tens of people listening about? I'm sure you have a very wide following, and I'm thrilled to be reaching all of those uh, hundreds of thousands of people. And yes, I would encourage you to go to csis.org for our reports, for commentaries, uh, and for uh, video of our events. Um, we are 
uh, about to have a, an event in which I'm going to be talking with the Deputy Attorney General, Jeff Rosen. Um, and you can find that at CSIS.org. And uh, we will be posting things about our work on civics education. Um, so that's, yeah, look for Defending Democratic Institutions. Okay. Uh, and by the way, Jeff Rosen, I know very well, is a friend of mine. Uh, that'll be a great discussion. I will watch that. Uh, I know Jeff Rosen through one of my best friends from college is her dad is good friends with uh, Jeff Rosen. And it's like 10 years ago, I went into his office and he gave me career advice and he's been very, very nice to me. So that'll be a good discussion. So you, you, work have with, give me, you have to give me a little something to put in my introduction of him that no one else knows. Okay, yeah, we'll talk I, about that later. I can I can come up with some Rosen dirt. Uh uh, do you work with Juan Zarati at all at CSIS? I do. Juan is, Juan is wonderful. I've worked with Juan for many years. Juan uh, has been my mentor uh, throughout my life professionally. He's a great man. Uh, I've often thought of Juan in this pandemic because those who don't know Juan uh, would not know he's a big hugger. He likes to hug people, and presumably he hasn't been able to hug people for the last five months. So I'm really worried about his uh, his own health emotionally. So if you just... Yeah. If you can give him a, a sort of virtual hug for me at CSIS, I would appreciate that. Yeah, I will do that. And I will send him my favorite pandemic video, which is of a set of three twins, three sets of six, so six, who, who have just learned how to hug. They're little toddlers, and they just walk from one to the other, hugging, hugging. Oh, hugging. my gosh. And the caption is, when it's over. I I'm love that. Hug, I'm a big hugger, too. I'll send oh. it. Wonderful. I'm going to watch that as soon as we're done here. Okay, final question for Suzanne Spaulding. Let's say you come to Wisconsin to visit me. Uh, we do a discussion about cyber or any number of issues, and then you know we're celebrating afterwards uh, in the shadow of Lambeau Field, and we're at a bar, and a, a little kid from Northeast Wisconsin comes up to you and says, Ms. Spaulding, I, I heard you speak. I, your career fascinates me. I want to pursue a career you know, on the Hill and in the executive branch like you working on these issues? What advice would you have for that young Northeast Wisconsinite? I would say, bless you. That is so great. Don't lose sight of that dream. Don't give up despite all of the things you might hear and read. Uh, it's a noble profession and a noble calling. And I would say the thing you can, most important thing you can do to prepare for that is to read, I used to say read newspapers, uh, make sure that you are uh, you know, getting news information from a variety of sources uh, uh, every single day. And, and that will put you in very good stead for, for doing this kind of work. Second thing I would say is, is continue to tell everybody you meet that this is what you wanna do. Uh, that's how I got to the Hill was telling everybody while I was at the law firm that I really wanted to be on Capitol Hill. And when somebody heard about an opening, they said, oh, Suzanne wants to be on the Hill. That's phenomenal. Yeah. Networking, mentorship, these are common themes emerging in the answers to, to this question that I've had. Sure. Well, Suzanne, uh, I have learned an enormous amount from you over the past uh, year and a half. I hope to continue to learn from you. Uh, I truly admire all of the contributions that you've made, uh, not only to the Solarium Commission, but to the country over the last few decades. And uh, I think 
Uh, the young uh, men and women of Northeast Wisconsin could do far worse than looking to you as a model for how to serve their country uh, with honor and dignity. So thank you for taking an hour to talk about that and uh, I really appreciate it. Happy to do it. Uh, always a pleasure to talk with you. All right, great. Thank you.